Welcome to your digital reputation. Here's your host, Roger Christie. Hello, and thanks for joining us. My name's Roger Christie, founder of digital reputation advisory firm, Propel. And today, we're looking at the question, does digital participation reinforce authentic leadership. You know, one of the common criticisms I hear around uh, the things that leaders post online is, yeah, but that's so manufactured or, you know, that post reads more like a media release than what they really think. It's so scripted. I think there's a a perception, if you will, that digital participation actually makes it easier for leaders to mask authenticity and have others do the work for them. But is that really the case? What does authentic leadership look like in the digital age of fake news and disinformation? Does digital participation make leaders more or less transparent? Does the way we expect leaders to be and behave online differ from offline? And are there any differences in expectations between female and male leaders when it comes to having an authentic voice? Today, I'm joined on Your Digital Reputation by Sarah Tualdo, someone who's had more than 30 years of experience in visual storytelling, connecting and and leading teams through change, and someone who has spent probably more time than most exploring adaptive leadership, what works well, very important at this time, I would argue, Sarah, and also the gender divides in that context through her Master of Communication. And, and having worn many hats across broadcast media, corporate communication, and across both the public and private sectors, Sarah brings a breadth and depth of experience to this discussion, which is both unique and informed. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the Your Digital Reputation podcast. Thank you, Roger. It's um, absolutely wonderful to be here. Excellent. Thank you. And look, let's dive into this. This is a really interesting and relevant topic, I feel, for people now, this this topic around authenticity. So, Sarah, in your view, does digital participation reinforce authentic leadership? I think like anything, it can be a double-edged sword. You can fake anything. Um, But to my mind, it absolutely does reinforce that authenticity. I uh, had a great example. I um, was looking for someone to come and join the team and they scoped me out online first to see if they wanted to come and work on the team to see what I liked, what my leadership style was, what my values were and if they aligned with theirs. So uh, that, that that's critical to me to having great team members and, and matching the digital with the physical. And I think something in there straight off the bat, Sarah, is that you don't know who's looking. Like that example, you don't know who's looking and you don't know when they're looking. So that authenticity piece isn't just about, you know, oh, this post has to be particularly authentic or, oh, this particular thing needs to come across as authentic online. It's it's a way of being online, isn't it, that, that leaders in particular need to subscribe to? I totally agree with that. There's, there's the two worlds that are now converging, the digital and the physical, and they've got to match. If you get that, if you get a mismatch, you get that cognitive dissonance that's just going to um, either carry through in your digital reputation or your physical reputation. And and you've got to make that match. And like you said in the intro, if, if things are too practised, if they're prepared by someone in advance, you, you can tell that it's a media release and not the true authentic person. So my advice has always been to leaders is you know what you can and can't say, you know who you are, you've got to really do those posts on your digital online presence yourself. Let the company digital reputation be that media release, be that more polished uh, tone that that you would get. So there's a difference between 
um, say, for example, the department one and the leader in the department. It's a really important point because I think we do uh, naturally default to whatever we see around us in the digital environment. So if I'm on LinkedIn and I'm looking at what's being posted and shared on LinkedIn, I'm not necessarily distinguishing between whether that's an individual or whether that's an entity, whether it's an institution. And we can find ourselves adopting the language and the and you know the, the digital mannerisms, if I can call it that, of institutions. And we're not. We're yeah. people. We talk differently and, and we have a dialogue differently. And that's a huge advantage. It's not something that should almost be, oh, gee, how am I going to phrase this? It's more what a wonderful opportunity to connect at a different and deeper level than any brand possibly could. It's a real challenge and I also find that on the digital world, digital space, the different channels can have different um, voices or, or different styles and I'm very much aware that on LinkedIn my profile is very much business leadership, culture change, communications focus. It crosses over into Twitter a little bit, but Twitter's more my social self, like I follow McLaren and I love Daniel Ricardo and Formula One and, you know, all the funny things that come in there and I follow that. Facebook's very private. And then I've got Instagram, that's more my personal life, you know, sharing sharing what I'm doing for the day and those sorts of things. So I'm still aware of my reputation and I'm very much aware of what I comment and like on Twitter, um, but it's a different start. It's a different facet of my reputation. So it's not only the difference between the company and the person, it's also the different digital channels that, that make the difference in that reputation. I suppose if you look across all three, you'll get the full gamut of who I am and, and, and what I like, um, but not many people do that. So, Sarah, what I'm hearing there is, there's this really interesting uh, nuance, I suppose, around channels and the way you use them differently. And I'm going to guess that maybe there's a clue in there. I don't want to jump the gun, but maybe there's something in there around having distinct audiences within each channel. And it's important to make sure that you're turning up as people, as that audience might expect you to, to, to turn up or how to behave in that particular environment. So as I say, I don't want to jump the gun though, because I do feel like there's a bigger question here around what authentic leadership actually looks like online? What does it look like in the digital age um, in the sense of, as you've just described it, maybe having different identities or variations of the same identity might be better, variations of the same person based on the channel you're using and the audience you're talking to? So if we go back to the definition of authentic leadership, that's being true to yourself. That's your values, your uh, experience, your skills and showing your vulnerability, which actually is very hard to do in the digital space in um, this. It's probably the, the only difference I'd have between the digital and physical world is, is being able to be vulnerable. We know all the online bullying and, and harassment and the trolls that are out there that make being vulnerable very hard and having a conversation is hard. But if you go back to what authentic leadership is, it's being your, your true, true self. And so you can show different values, different facets of your true self in your to your peers, to your team, to your superiors. To my mind, it is no different. I'm, I can be authentic to um, a senior person but I'll be a different sort of authenticity than I will be to my team. But my underlying values will always be the same of courage, collaboration, trust, um, 
they will always be there. They'll just be exhibited in different ways. So just as that authentic leadership is exhibited in LinkedIn, um, showing my values and participating and commenting on the conversations on what's important in my career. Um, obviously, it's communications, but I love the, the change organisational design, the people the, the people factor. That authenticity then gets reflected in Twitter through showing what I value in my personal life um, to relax, which is um, watching Formula One with my daughter. I create that connection with my daughter through watching Formula One and we talk about the race car drivers and, of course, you know, Daniel Ricciardo being Australian, you've got to cheer on an Australian. To, to then that value and that authenticity is matched in Instagram through showing what I value, which is the pictures I put up and that's, you know, the nature's going for dog walks and fresh air and the environment. It, it's all value, it's all authentic, authentic, but it's exhibited in different ways. What I'm hearing is what it's not is you're literally a carbon copy of yourself across these different channels because while, as you say, they're connected to the same core, you respect each environment for its unique attributes and its unique conversations and you participate in that environment in a way that is appropriate rather than copying pasting across different channels. Absolutely. We're not like that in real life, so why are we like that in the digital world? I love that statement. It's such a good thought that people could take to all scenarios online. It's it's weird how we just, it's almost like we freeze up and we forget that the digital environment, and, and particularly true in this day and age, is really just an extension of the physical one in the sense that it's another domain of life in, in the same way that you wouldn't turn up to every physical setting. What I wear to a cafe is very different to what I wear to the opera, as an example. Th these are different settings where there's a different expectation and a different type of, still authentic, but a different type of yourself that turns up. Um, absolutely agree. But I think probably what's different is that we know that there's a digital trail. So probably there's a fear that comes in because people know that, what they think and say and do at 20 is different to what they think and say and do at 40. It, there's an element in me that, that's glad I've grown up without that digital trail and I can make my mistakes as a 20-year-old as a um, that, that this generation can't do. But we've got to get beyond that fear and we've just always got to be aware, as you said, of that digital reputation that once it's out there, it, it, it's out there and it will stay with you for a long, 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 long time. And I know they're talking about digital ghosts and the digital when you pass over, move on, die. What happens to that? You know, that's the next thing, the, the, the legacy of your digital reputation as well. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that happens, you know, in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's an interesting dynamic you bring up and it's something that we're actually, we talk about quite a bit with clients is around that, that idea of what if my views change and am, am, am I going to be held to account for comments that I made years earlier? And I think what's really important for people to recognise in that is that it's not that we cannot change our views. It's not that our views cannot mature or deepen or whatever it might be. And I think a really good example of that, I know we don't want to go straight to examples mode right now, but a really good example of that is looking at the evolution or the journey of Mike Cannon-Brooks at Atlassian around his journey from 
almost like falling into this idea of renewables and uh, and climate change and and then because of because of a passion uh, and, and that becoming almost core to who he is and his identity today as a business leader and I think that journey has been has played out very publicly but what's important about that and this is the way that I would encourage other leaders to think about it is if you only turn up at key moments or if you almost you know turn up to make a statement and then a couple of years later you turn up to make another statement and there's no consistency in what you're doing the risk that you run is if your views have changed in that time people will ask questions the gap that you've left allows people to ask questions and that's where conjecture and distrust comes in if you're consistent and you're showing almost like an evolution of your views online that paper trail is actually very powerful and the thing i would add to that is network so if you're surrounded by people who then back you up and and because of your digital engagement, your digital participation, you've made a statement, that view and, and, and your perception of things may have changed and grown and matured because you've been listening to others around you who are more credentialed or more experienced in that space and you bolt their knowledge onto yours almost. If you're surrounded by those people, when you get to that point where your views have changed quite dramatically from where you were, and let's hope our views as 40-year-olds change from our views as 20-year-olds just quietly. But if that's what happens, people then go, I can see the journey this person's come on. I can see that they're surrounded by credible individuals who do share that view. And well, if this person was a joke, then they wouldn't be connected with them kind of thing. Um, and, and that starts to build and protect our digital reputation. So I agree with you. And I think there's very purposeful steps people can take. And it's through participation that you can mitigate that risk. I think also we want to see that journey in our leaders. We want discourse. The one thing that's driving us, well, me a bit crazy, is the talking at people. And once you said, I believe in X, you're not allowed to change your mind. When we know that in leadership, diversity, collaboration, discussion reaches a better outcome. We want people to be able to change their mind. We want people to go on that journey to get a better result for the outcome for society as or your team or company or, or whoever is a leader. So absolutely agree. You, That's why you need to be authentic. You need to share with your audience, your peers, your people, the journey that you're going on as a person. And, and where you've come and why you've changed and what are the experiences that have changed you. We all go through critical life experiences that change us. And if we take people on that journey with us, they can understand where we've come out the other side and why we are, as you said, you've got those breadcrumbs on your digital. And when you're active all the time, rather than just at key moments, people know who you are and what you what you stand for and that and that's critical but that discourse that ability to change our mind that's the next evolution where we're going with our digital reputation and that's where I want I know I want my leaders that if they get new information they can act on it and change their mind rather than just be this is who I am this is what I believe and and, and go and not willing to change their mind so um I think it's critical, as you said, to have that journey to explain who you are as a leader, your values, um, your, your what what drives you, what motivates you, what's your interests, the whole person that you can share online. And as we said, you've just got different facets of that personality depending on the channel and the need. And I'd imagine also for someone on the outside looking in, if they saw that that scenario you're describing before where this is my view and I'm stuck to it, I'm, I'm never going to change that. And I heard this wonderful phrase actually used, you know, strong opinions loosely held. It's that kind of idea of I'm turning up and I'm very passionate about this, but I'm open 
to other ideas that might change my view. If you're on the outside and you're looking at someone and you can see that they're posting about the same thing over and over and over again, and despite overwhelming evidence, I mean, let's pick a topic like climate change, for example, despite overwhelming evidence that might suggest that things are different to what you believe, as a, as a prospective employee, as an investor, a shareholder, um, as someone who might be a potential partner, I'm looking into that and going, well, if you're not willing to change your mind based on evidence as you're, as you're describing it there, Sarah, is this a good place for me to be? Is this a good organisation for me to work with if it's not willing to change based on new evidence? So I think there's, there's power in changing your mind on things or changing your opinion on things, providing again, going back to what you said right at the start, it is true to yourself and it is true to your values. What about, you know, does this does this idea change based on, you know, where you find yourself? If you're, if you're a, I suppose, different leadership styles or if you work in the public sector versus the private sector or maybe even between men and women, for example, is, is there any variation in terms of what, in inverted commas, authentic leadership might look like in the online environment. And maybe that's based on the expectations people have of certain leaders when they turn up online. Oh, that's a really hard question because I think, as we've talked, you can either fake it online and and try to be someone who you're not, but then that doesn't match up in the physical world so you'll always end up tripping yourself over. I think you're going back then to societal expectations on gender differences and there's been a traditionally held view that the masculine traits are task-orientated, autocratic, directive, transactional, uh, your command and control style leadership. And then what they're looking at in that the, the feminine style is expressive, they're more interpersonally orientated, they're more democratic, participatory, transformational styles. Um, and, and I think th- there, the research has shown there's a slight difference, but it's not huge. It's just an expectation that we've grown up in a, in a society of where we've been and where we've come from is my personal view. Um, and, and I think they, they, you know, you read Harvard Business Review and Forbes and all those that in today's society you need more transformational style leadership, so you need to embrace that more feminine style. Um, so it, it, it's a really, it's a really hard one. I think it's a generational change that where we've come from. The um, when you think of more of that autocratic. That, that's come from the 40s and 50s and pre that when we've gone through two world wars and a, and a depression and a very patriarchal society that's been directive and it's now changing to a more democratic participative society that's through the growth and online as well, the physical and the digital again merging as one. Um, so I don't think there really is any difference per se. It's just, again, a perception that that people people have and I'm probably more naturally drawn to that um, transformational democratic participatory style leadership I I if someone's autocratic and directive unless it's in an emergency which you want you know take us to the bushfires go do that go leave now you want that so that was the other thing that when I was um, in my leadership unit for my master's is you We've all got those different traits in us. You just bring them out 
at different times. You're a parent, you know when your child's about to stick a knife in a PowerPoint, you've got to be directive and autocratic and say stop, not, you know, oh, let's have a discussion about it. So they're all there in us. We just bring them out at different times is what I'm trying to say. But my, or I, I tend to go towards that transformational style overall. I, yeah, I really agree with that. Obviously, the, the knife in the, <laughs> the PowerPoint scenario sounds scarily familiar. Um, but you're right. It, it's a bit of a horses for courses approach in the sense of what's happening around us. And we must understand that context in order to be effective leaders, which talks to this adaptive leadership concept that you're referring to. I just want to maybe go a little bit deeper around that idea of transformational leadership. And I think the idea of collaboration um, and, and that network mindset or network thinking being a more fair and trait then. I mean, I sitting here as the, 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 the critical lens from the digital reputation world and how these different social networks operate, I'm naturally going, that, that feels to me to be naturally more feminine. It feels to me to be um, a place that would naturally suit female leaders as a wonderful opportunity to connect with other peers and, and like-minded men and women, but, but as a natural trait to go and problem solve together. And to build almost those armies of, of advocates and supporters who are going to collaboratively work towards solutions, particularly in a world that, as we know, is, is very different and very dynamic today. Um, is, that, is that fair? Is that something that presents a, a unique opportunity to female leaders in the digital environment, being that that is a more feminine attribute? I think it's probably um, a natural strength, but there are a lot of collaborative um, male leaders out there as well. I mean, I think our new Prime Minister is, is showing that collaboration. You look at his cabinet and the diversity in that cabinet that shows a strong and, and inner strength and, and an ability to collaborate. I think it's just something that needs to be more brought out in, in, in people and allowed, and I think we need to allow our, our male leaders to be more transformational as much as sometimes we don't allow our female leaders to be autocratic and directive we don't allow our male leaders to be transformational either so it goes both ways if you look at um julia gillard's the documentary and my brain is just um it was on sbs um about her leadership style and how she acted that um that that more she she took risks, her behaviours were more traditionally male-orientated and, and that that cognitive dissonance was just, um, you know, that created, it was really interesting. You go back and look at where it is and, and where it was and, and how she had behaved and how they treated her being a strong female leader. It's it's interesting and I think, I think we've got to allow our, our male leaders to do to be different as well it works it works both ways there's strengths in both what, what you're making me think Sarah is around this concept that we've talked about quite a bit around a digital coalition and I think that it's you know what, what you're saying there in terms of we, I love that idea that that concept of we've got to allow both sides this is not a, a one versus the other it's not divisive it's actually inclusive in the sense that if we if we have networks of people who are Represent, representative of the community, that there is diversity there. These coalitions are actually incredibly powerful because they do harness the strengths of one another. And, and what that means quite practically for, for those listening, what we're talking about here is if you've got two leaders from or multiple leaders from different organisations, 
leaders within the same organisation, leaders across different sectors who are aligned on certain social issues, whatever it might be, if there's more than one voice that provides diversity and provides perspective and experience, all that sort of stuff, those people working together in a digital environment makes the, the fruits of that um, that conversation, that discourse, the collaboration, whatever it is, makes it public, makes it scalable and makes it something that multiple communities can get behind rather than, you know, perhaps the more autocratic we're going to just put our head down and, and, and charge on. So I think it's important that we, we harness almost the inherent uh, network infrastructure that digital channels provide us to do that, to create those coalitions and to work more collaboratively to problem solve in this day and age. Uh, absolutely. And getting those ideas out and sharing those ideas and creating those aha moments, those light bulb moments that you don't know where they're going to go is the strength in the digital world, that there's lots of information out there. The The one downside that I do find is I do sort of go down lots of rabbit holes. So you've got to be aware of the rabbit holes and learn to focus where your interests, which comes back to that authentic leadership. What are your values? What are your beliefs? Um, and, and where am I really trying to go? And, and that self-curiosity as a person of, of discovering your 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 strengths. Um, after 30 years of working, I'm, I'm really only now finding out what my um, strengths and really where I'm interested in because I'm very much a person that does I know, shiny object syndrome sometimes. Like, oh, that's interesting. Let's go down there. It's like, oh, behavioural economics, that's awesome. Oh, leadership, that's great. Communications, I need to know that. And it's, you've got, I've really got to sort of focus on, on what I what I love and what brings me joy back to that authenticity that then gets mirrored in the digital and the physical world. So, but the, the the strength, as you said, is actually being able to access all that information, but but just be aware of the rabbit holes so you don't become then too scattered and people don't know what you stand for because you're going for a range of things. Very sensible advice. And and so one of the things we were touching on before is, you know, we need to allow people to, to be more authentic and I suppose to find their voice online. In your view, how can leaders find that authentic voice for themselves? And, and maybe even if there are, who does this well already? Which examples of, of leaders would you point people to for inspiration? I think you've got to follow your passion, which again brings who, who you are. I obviously can't talk about... I don't know, mathematics. I'm not a mathematical person, so I'm not even going to go down there. So it, it's find out who your passion is a person and what you love. Who does it well in the online world? Uh, look, three really well-known people. I think Brene Brown is an obvious go-to with her leadership and her vulnerability work. Um, she's taking a three-month sabbatical at the moment and she said up front, I need to do this to recharge and I'll come back better. And she's open and honest and authentic. You know who, what you're going to get with Brene. Simon Sinek is very much similar as well. Um, and looking at it from across the ditch, um, Jacinta Ardern I really admire as a leader. Um, she tends to come across um, authentic. Now, I'm not um, from New Zealand, so, you know, there's, there's always differences when people are in the country with those leaders. So they're three obvious ones. Um in my personal and the digital world, um, Carly Lyon, I've done some work with on branding and reputation. She's awesome. She's been very much 
talking about who you are and, and vulnerability. And I did a did a workshop with Carly and there was a lovely um, Dana Bait Brett. Dana Brooke, um, she's into sustainable travel and I've been watching Dana on LinkedIn and all her posts are to deal with her business, but it's her passion and it's her belief as well, as we talked about climate change earlier, sustainability and travel, you know, catch the train rather than catch the plane sorts of things and 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 how to travel and stay sustainability. So, so that matches. And then I've got an absolutely wonderful um, peer in Canberra. Her name's Abby Rees and she runs her own company and she is absolutely authentic to the bone um, with her website. Who you read and who you see with Abby is who you get when you, she runs workshops or, or does sessions with you and coaching sessions with you. And that you don't get that dissonance then when you see what they say online and who they are as a, as a, as a person. It, it's there right right in front of you and it can attract you. So there, there's a range there of, you know, from well-leading famous people to, to, to local people that I, I like to, to watch and, and work with. And I, and I love sharing that spectrum too because it, it's it doesn't just have to be the people who, you know, if you're a prime minister, for example, potentially have far more resources than someone who's running their own business and, and it's good to see how different people execute. And I think to that point too, Sarah, also understanding what authenticity can look like in different versions. So it can be the, you know, the very emotive, very vulnerable, as you said earlier, and I, I do think that's a really important point. It can be those quite revealing pieces. They, they can be authentic. But authenticity at times is also, and, and some very specific examples. Um, one one of ours was a, um, or is a client, and you, you can just tell when it's him talking because of the little grammatical nuances, extra spacings, or you know, double exclamation marks. Those little things in comments, you can tell that it's them. It's the way that they do things and it doesn't come across scripted or polished or anything like that. It's just them participating. And another example of that to kind of scale it to, you know, a, a more prominent figure is, you know, Shane Elliott at ANZ. You can tell when it's something that's done in, you know, with a lot of planning, with a lot of communication support. And then you can tell when it's, you know, potentially Shane jumping out of the cab on the way back to the office, quickly writing on his mobile phone because there may be no grammar, there may be no capitals, there may be no nothing. And it, But it's fine because the, the point I think he's trying to get across in those little messages is, no, that's not appropriate for an all-team message. Yes, it is appropriate for getting someone a timely response. And, and if his DNA is all about caring about the customer and it is all about the other person, then that message with all the grammatical errors is actually a really good one because it does what you said, his purpose and, and his values, it delivers that in spades even if it's not a polished piece of comms. Absolutely. And, look, that's always a challenge i found as a communication professional when you're writing for seniors. There's uh, occasions where it needs to be fully scripted because you've got a set time, you've got a large audience, you want to get a certain message across. And then there's the times for those those casual um interpersonal messages again it's like the very it's it's the different channels that you have is it is it linkedin is it twitter is it instagram is it a national press club is, is it all staff email is it a tweet um or is it a phone call or or an or an email and that's as a communication professional you need to brief your senior you need to know who the audience and what the occasion is and then either know whether to let them go and be their authentic self or is it something that needs to be more carefully crafted like a speech or those sorts of things so 
that's always a balance and a challenge. Um, but it's also what I love about um, being a communication professional is is educating people in their leadership journey, in their communication journey, in their authentic leadership journey, that it's okay, as you say, to put out that imperfect tweet, to show who you are to your people so it's backed up in that digital world, whether that's an email or in a face-to-face town hall meeting. You, you can't have that cognitive dissonance between the two because then people won't believe you and they won't follow you. Spot on. And, and so, Sarah, this conversation for me has been filled with so many little nuggets of gold. So ho- I'm really hopeful that our listeners are taking something away today that really resonates with them because there's so much in that. I mean, it, that the, the ideas of consistency, um, making sure you're living your values in every moment, even if that is different in different forms or, or different channels. Um, at times, that vulnerability is authentic, but at times it may not be appropriate. And just knowing when that's the right time or not, the importance of knowing your audience, as you're saying, as much as your channel. And I think the thing that wraps that all up is this idea of being willing to adapt. And so not having to, to turn up as a cardboard copy of yourself, but instead being willing to kind of adjust to the situation, to change your mind as a leader can be a very powerful, and I would argue, empowering thing for others too, to know that it's okay to change your mind with the right evidence and the right influences around you. Well, that's the very definition of adaptive leadership and what I'm loving being a new student of adaptive leadership is that it's a practice. You can't just go and learn how to drive and drive. You've got to, you've got to practice, you've got to continually change. And um, if anyone really wants to, to um, look up adaptive leadership, it's, there's a great book called The Practice of Adaptive Leadership by Ronald Heifetz, Alexander Grushell and Martin Linsky. And their definition of adaptive leadership is the practice of mobilising people to tackle tough challenges and thrive. And that's all about leadership is what we're trying to do is tackle those challenges but also allow our team and our people who who we're leading to thrive. Because no point being a leader and tackling those big problems if people aren't thriving. So um, if anyone's really looking um, at something like that, I'm finding my way through the book and just... It's it's my new rabbit hole. <laughs> you found it. You found it. No, look, what what great advice and which leader would want to today? And and perhaps we can include a link to that book in the show notes too, Sarah, so that others can find it. And look, thank you so much for your time, for your insights, for your wisdom today, Sarah. Thank you for joining us on the Your Digital Reputation podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thanks again for listening. If you've learned something from today's conversation, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with others. For all show notes, head to propelgroup.com.au. Thanks again for listening.